Welcome to episode five of season two of the podcast, The 33. In this episode, we will discuss Nicholas, one of the 33 individuals that interviewed for Dr. Shuko's book, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. Dr. Rashi Shuko is a professor of criminal justice here at the University of Central Oklahoma and the author of the book of discussion, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. It was published by the University of California Press. And I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson, a professor of mass communication. We are glad to be back. We are recording actually pretty late. We would have recorded about two weeks ago, but yours truly had COVID. And I had a mild case. Everything is fine. But uh, uh, Dr. Shukla, (laughs) you just came out of something a few days ago. You tested positive for COVID. And then tested negative. So I got (laughs) sick with something. It was terrible. Stay safe. But yes, it was bad. And I'm very glad to be back doing this. Well, I'm glad to be back too. And we have some interesting news. Rashi out of Ohio, a three-year-old was found at home locked inside a cage. Three people have been arrested in what the Hocking County Sheriff's Office is calling a severe case of child abuse. Deputies executed a search warrant at a home on Bear Run Road Sunday, finding a three-year-old child in a cage and a two-year-old child holding a drug pipe. But there is, of course, more to this story. Uh, What can you tell us about uh, this three-year-old in Ohio before we go into Nicholas? Well, this comes a story that comes out of Hawking County Sheriff's Office in Ohio, where there were two parents that were arrested, a 25-year-old and a 38-year-old, after the children were found in the home following a sexual assault investigation, which is not very surprising. So not only was a three-year-old locked in the cage with zip ties and it was, you know, spoiled milk and bugs and all that, but they found a two-year-old in the home walking around with a methamphetamine pipe. Um, In this case, the grandmother was the one who had custody of the children and she was taken into detention when the children were put in foster care. Is that pretty common that the grandparents will get the kids? You know, when they don't know where to put a child that's being removed from a home or if a parent's removed, then oftentimes whoever is next in line, kin or family, friends would take over. In this situation, I don't have a lot of more you know, information on it, but it's not uncommon for children to put, be put in the next of kin's care. You know, I don't know enough about if the grandmother herself was involved in meth in this case, or if it was just the two parents mm-hmm. that were taken into custody before. And you have another one there. Uh, we're going to uh, look at a story dealing with the DEA who's warning now about colored fentanyl I mean, fentanyl right now is a major issue all through the United States, but now they're targeting young Americans with a colored fentanyl pill. What do you have to add to that story? Well, and this was just something that just came out in the news about the DEA, you know, our federal law enforcement agency warning of brightly colored fentanyl. So basically making it look like candy with pink and green and yellow and blue. And they're referring to it um, as rainbow fentanyl. So just as a way to try to get people drawn to it and make kids think that it's like candy. I mean, I'm looking at the picture right now. It looks like Lucky Charms, like, you know, all the um, marshmallows that are in Lucky Charms. It's a, uh, you know, it's sad to see now that uh, it's likely that even children may get their hands on this. You can easily see if um, a parent who may be using fentanyl or abusing it leaves this on the table, Mm -hmm. children are gonna grab it and they're gonna actually use it. Put it right from their hand into their mouth when Mm -hmm. it looks like that. We're gonna go to Laos now. And in that country, they had a huge, 
huge meth bust. They did. They did. So this again is we're talking September 2022. What is their third largest bust in their history? And it's a bust of 33 million methamphetamine Mm. pills, along with 1100 pounds of crystal meth. So in Laos, according to this article, they had their largest seizure of 55.6 million meth pills and 3300 pounds back in October of 2021. January of 22 was their second largest bust. And now here we are with the third largest bust in a very short amount of time of 33 million meth pills and 1,100 pounds of crystal meth. And as we say, there's a lot more not being caught. Right. This is just (laughs) what got what's getting detected. It's amazing. And we are not only seeing this in the United States, as we just stated, we're seeing this all over the world, uh, Dr. Shukla, and not to... uh, make any suggestions. I know the study you did here in the state of Oklahoma and interviewing the 33 four hour podcast. I mean, can you imagine doing an international study and looking at the issues that are related to meth in different countries? I mean, that would be just be amazing. And, you know, I would never have guessed back in, you know, the 2000s when we started the study around 2007, 2008, that we would be here in 2022 and seeing some of these record seizures of these quantities. I just, it's, it's shocking to think about how this evolved the way it is and how we're at where we are now. Well, here in Oklahoma, Dr. Rashi Shukla interviewed 33 people for her book, uh, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. And one of them was Nicholas. Nicholas was a uh, 27-year-old former cook and user who defined his use of meth, mostly smoking it. Uh, He did not uh, use IV using, he did at one time, but then I guess Dr. Shukla, he felt like uh, he was, actually he used the word guilt and felt shameful that he actually intravenously used meth, which then moved him to just smoke it. What did he say, and I'm kind of jumping around here, but what did he say about the difference between IV users and those who smoked? He actually had them differentiated, didn't he? Absolutely. And so Nicholas is interesting because he's a Caucasian male, single, never been married. He had a seven-year-old daughter at the time of our interview, was employed at a library, and had graduated from an alternative high school and was in college as a freshman at the time of the interview. So he's one of the people, you know, the rare people that we talk about. A majority of people in my study had um, some involvement with the criminal justice system, and Nicholas did not. And so that's part of his story is how he escapes this. But he kind of doesn't start using meth by intravenously using when he starts when he's in high school. So it's kind of like around 16 to 17 and within a month of using it, he's a daily user. So he progresses really quickly. But um, his friends who were using it and they were also cooking it were quite a bit older than him and they referred to him as the kid. And so he talks about that and he describes IV use as like as a completely different level. So even though he had guilt about it, He talks about it like the difference between being sober and snorting meth equal to the difference between snorting meth and using it as an IV, Mm. like there being that much of a difference. And because he really didn't feel comfortable with it, and he just talks about not being comfortable with it on the inside, he kind of uses intravenously, you know, starts out with his friend just has what he calls the rig, which is like the whole kit that he has to shoot up. And he does it with his friends, you know, but he'd already been using it. And then doesn't really like it, doesn't want to have the track marks. And so he kind of waffles back and forth and then eventually really 
goes to kind of smoking it and snorting it over this injection um, process, which is much more invasive and requires more equipment. Yeah, I remember my ex-wife saying snorting it and smoking it was her only option. She would not intravenously uh, shoot up. Uh, one of the reasons, as you just described it, Nicholas gave was the idea that, uh, first of all, you don't want the marks. They're right. easily seen. Then family would see the marks, friends and others would see the marks, and this could constitute a lot of questions, right? Right. Of what are you doing, uh, especially when you got the behavior associated with it. Well, what else can you tell us about Nicholas's background uh, and drug history and his this journey that he took to first uh, uh, using meth? You know, Nicholas again. He he's one of the people who has snorted meth, smoked it, and then again intravenously used it. And again, we've talked about this before. But you can imagine somebody being in high school and they're intravenously using on and off and manufacturing meth at the time. So he's actually cooking while he's in high school. Um, kind of gets involved with dealing. You know, his dealing's different than a lot of other people, where he only kept it to where he interacted with two people. So when he would make meth, he would take, you know, keep his percentage, take percentage to person A and another percentage to person B. And that was as far as he touched networks. But that's still someone in the distribution chain. Um, with regard to his cooking, he was mostly an anhydrous ammonia cook. You know, we'll talk about in a little bit about some about the rural part of this, you know, lived in a farming community. That's the precursor chemical that they had available. And what really what's interesting about Nicholas isn't um, so much what I asked and got answers to, but a large part of what I missed. You know, all of these interviews were kind of done under pressure where there was never enough time. I was teaching, I was, you know, racing out to these places to meet people to interview them. And our interview schedule was so long that an average interview would be two hours in length. So that what I missed with Nicholas, which if I had the opportunity to go back and do it again, I would, is he talks about his father being a meth user and a meth manufacturer before he was born. And he actually goes as far to be like, that's a really, you know, crazy story like that, you know, kind of like a hinting, like I would tell you another time. And I didn't have the wherewithal to follow up on it. I was so concerned about capturing his story and not losing him and making him feel comfortable that it's literally like reading this and looking back on it that you're like, gosh, darn it, that's a missed opportunity to get a gold mine of information. And he did, of course, uh, briefly mention that his father had a history doing that, which uh, from your studies, if a family member or especially someone as closely as your father has a history in meth, cooking it and using it, it's likely that you probably will be sometime in your life introduced to it. And so he was introduced to it as a high school student, correct? Correct. And he talks about this concept called the ether bunny. <laughs> what is the ether bunny? He talks about the junkie kit that his friend would use to carry around. And he described what was in the junkie kit, but he also mentioned the ether bunny. What can you tell us about the junkie kit and the ether bunny? You know, it's it's one of the most fascinating parts of any project like this or study like this is is learning the slang or the lingo or the language that people use and come up with. And so, you know, obviously he's, when he's talking about the intravenous use, he mentions this junkie kit. And what the junkie kit is, is you've got your needle, you've got your spoon, you've got your Q-tips, you've got your little bag, and you've got your methamphetamine. So kind of going back to this kind of ritualistic aspect that we've talked about is this junkie kit. And I, you know, I've heard people go as far as saying, you know, just having it or seeing it or thinking about it can cause them a rush. Um, and then he also mentioned this ether bunny and I had never heard that 
you know, before or since. And he mentioned that in response to the question when I asked, you know, well, what did you worry about most when you were using meth? You know, did you worry about anything? And he basically says the ether bunny. And he mentions it as a slang term for, you know, kind of seeing things out of the corner of your eye when you've been awake for long periods of time. And some people call this shadow people. There's actually this book that's called Shadow People that's not an academic book, but, you know, like you kind of see these like traces of what you think are people, but that's what happens. You've been up for days, you're paranoid, you're seeing things, you're hallucinating it. And so his name for that, you know, that kind of trace image that he sees was the ether bunny. So not the Easter bunny, but the ether bunny. Not the Easter bunny, <laughs> not to be confused with the Easter bunny. Nicholas goes on and talks about uh, how he changed as he became a cook. Something came about by adopting this idea of being a cook. He got more attention. He received uh, this type of respect, if you will, if you want to call it respect, from others when he would enter the room. And he even referred to the movie Goodfellas. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. What was he referring to once he moved into this cook stage in his life? What kind of experiences did he receive from others? You know, it's interesting because, and he's not the first person who talks about this and he's not going to be the last. And, you know, basically when you're involved, and again, remember, he's younger than these people. Some of these other peers that are involved in cooking are in their 30s. Meanwhile, he's in high school. So they're referring to him as the kid and they know of his father, even though he didn't really know about that. And so, you know, he kind of lies his way into learning to cook by saying, oh yeah, I've cooked a lot and then getting them to help get the supplies and then getting them to teach him. So it's kind of not like a chance encounter to get to meth because when you get to where you can make meth, that's where the money is, that's where the power is. And so he just talks about what it's like to be this young person and have all these people respect him and treat him well and he feels like he's a super genius when he's on it. And then of course women are throwing themselves at him and at anybody who's got this power. you know. And that was kind of the quote that he had about about the Goodfellas, which I, you know, is one of my favorite movies from the past. <laughs> yeah, is, mine too. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'd been using and looking back, it's pretty goofy, but the way that women would throw themselves at that guy, he said it was a power thing, it was a respect thing. I remember, she's screaming on the street, and I mean loud, but she looked good. I'll think about it. It's going to cost you, Hill. going to make it up. It's going to cost you a lot. Yeah, these great eyes, just like Liz Taylor's. He was an exciting guy. It was really nice. So needless to say, Nicholas walked into a room and he felt like he was very powerful. Not only did he have women throwing themselves at him, but people would actually get up, move out of the way, give him a chair. And he even mentioned in the book, they would come up to him and go, hey, man, what's going on? How are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Right. All these users wanted to be around him because they knew this was their source for their high. And so they treated him like he's never been treated before. Because it sounds like when he was in high school, he was an outsider. He probably wasn't uh, getting a lot of attention from right. the ladies, as he explains. And so this was a huge change in his life. 
And, you know, money is part of it. So he would, at that time, he would spend about $100. And if he just, you know, split his product to these two people, that $100 would turn into 1000 But if he, you know, nickel and dimed his way in selling grams, he could make upwards of $3,000. This is someone who lives out in the country on a farm with no expenses. That's a lot of money and a lot of things that come with having that much expendable money. Yeah, a lot of money that people don't even make uh, in two weeks or even in a month. Correct. So Nicholas moves on and he finds himself now cooking. And uh, there's a lot of risks, of course, that are involved in cooking meth. We've talked about a lot of examples of uh, explosions. And uh, many of the 33 people that you've interviewed even mentioned losing friends uh, to explosions while they're cooking. What can you uh, add as far as Nicholas's experiences and the risks of cooking? You know, it's really interesting because one of the things that Nicholas talks about, and he actually says, I wish law enforcement would understand this. And of course, this is, you know, you have to time check this. This is back in the day when we were having a lot of cooking here. But he was like, the more that the risks go up, so does the adrenaline that goes with it. So the riskier it becomes, the more exciting it becomes. And, you know, he actually attempts to steal anhydrous ammonia at one point and almost gets caught. The man who was at the co-op runs out and he actually says, you know, he's got this milk jug with anhydrous in it and his people are puking because they're, you know, gagging on this. And, you know, he, you know, the, the smell of it, and I don't know how to make you understand that. It's very, very strong powerful smell but so as this man runs out and catches him stealing he like threatens to hit him with that milk jug full of anhydrous ammonia and actually says i would have killed him and he goes well i might have actually done it i just wanted him to back up and so he's taking these risks and even possibly you know in that moment maybe even possibly killing somebody if it had come to that another time he's cooking meth in his in a field and he has his truck and the cops actually you know start coming and find him and so he actually catches his truck on fire to burn everything and that's when his parents kind of start to say okay we know something else is is going on here but he's taking great risks and you know i didn't have time to look this up but you know he describes the anhydrous ammonia as like 300 degrees below zero I know it's cold, cold, cold. I don't know chemically and chemistry-wise exactly, but I know it's like so cold it'll burn you. You're listening to Episode 5, Season 2 of the podcast, The 33 Methamphetamine, A Love Story, a book written by my guest, Dr. Rashi Shukla, Professor of Criminal Justice at the University of Central Oklahoma, and I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson, and we are today talking about Nicholas. Many of the 33, Dr. Shukla, came from rural Oklahoma, and these are areas typically where there's low-income households, very little opportunity for professional growth, and a lack of many of activities that we have here, of course, in the metropolitan areas. So they don't have a lot of outlets like maybe you and I do. So what did Nicholas say about rural life and, and its impact on his choice to use meth and also to cook meth? Yes, absolutely. So even, you know, he's describing these rural communities. He lives on a farm. And again, for people that live in a, in a metropolitan or urban or, you know, area or even a suburban community, it's very different. Closest neighbors four miles away. Mm-hmm. 
you know, there's a lot of meth, he said, not only then, but even now. And there's not a lot of good jobs other than working in the oil fields. So he describes this farm way out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, it's really, really large farm. And even talks about the fact that he would be able to see you coming for miles if you come on this land. You not only have to get on their property, but drive miles in to get to the point where all of this is happening. And he talks about the fact that in these communities, you don't have a lot of other things to do. And maybe having had more pro-social things to do might have stopped him from, you know, becoming involved with meth, although he even says no one could have really stopped him once he got into it. But there's just nothing to do. There's a lot of boredom. There's a lot of people, you know, not knowing what to do with their time. And then again, you walk outside of your community and you see an anhydrous ammonia tank. Mm. And that that's something that you can use to make this drug that is accessible, that is available, and that is all around. So it shouldn't be, again, surprising that people fall into this in these communities where there's not a lot to do and where there is a lot of meth. Well, we've been in Oklahoma long enough. That's kind of been the joke when I was in high school is, you know, what do we do in rural Oklahoma? You drink. You drink, you have sex, you, you smoke pot, you know, right. back when I was uh, in high school in the 1980s. And so, again, uh, very reflective of rural communities. And if we if we have any statistics, do you have anything as far as um, meth usage? Is it higher in rural communities than it is in metropolitan communities? Or is that just anecdotal and, uh, and we're just guessing that may be the case? You know, we can, it depends on what your indicators are that you look at, right? Like, are, is it people that are being arrested and that's not really coded by by type of drug? Or is it, you know, the percentage of people that are seeking treatment? And we were just looking for a, a paper slash presentation we're working on. We looked, for example, like Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse for the state of Oklahoma. And we were looking at like, what are the percentages of people that are seeking treatment that are having trouble getting it? And obviously some of the rural communities, like even the Panhandle, you know, lit up on their maps, which are available for public on their sites. So it really depends on what the indicators are, but absolutely meth is a huge problem in these rural communities where you don't have access to necessarily drug treatment or the support resources that you might need, as well as the transitional life resources, you know, here in Oklahoma City. We have programs where we can help someone maybe trying to transition out of a drug lifestyle. And in some of these smaller communities, those are just fewer and far between. And, you know, it might be harder to access and, and even just get to physically. Well, and sometimes boredom does lead to bad decisions. Yes. And, and in rural Oklahoma, uh, we see that it does play a big impact on choices that people make. And in this case, we're, of course, doing a podcast on meth and it is highly available in those rural communities. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to just throw this out there, but when I was doing this project, again, it, this is something that's been evolving over since 2004 to now. Mm -hmm. I don't remember it have, having been flooded, those rural communities, the way it has in more recent years. Like, mm -hmm. it has shifted. Yes, it was always there. Yes, it was always a problem. But the, the quantities that we were seeing and, and the distribution networks and, you know, all of this has become a lot more kind of sophisticated and, and kind of an unintended consequence of the way we've been handling it for years is now these small, small towns are just flooded with not only methamphetamine, but as we're talking about today, even with some of the fentanyl and some of the other drugs. And we even spoke in some of our earlier podcasts, the impact COVID has had right. uh, on meth use in Oklahoma, but even internationally and, of course, nationally. So I would imagine, too, in rural Oklahoma and rural communities uh, that spiked during COVID, like probably a lot of drug use. 
Right, exactly. And and I mean, I guess if there's something positive that's come out of some of this, um, you know, on a positive side is now we understand that a lot of people are struggling with mental health, you know, related to drug use and just related to the pandemic. And so we're finally putting attention on some of these underlying things that, you know, may be able to help people that are struggling with addiction or the pandemic or whatever it is they're struggling with. Dr. Shukla Nichols was able to avoid a long sentence or any serious time. He saw his friends going to jail. How did that impact his decision-making? I mean, when you interviewed him, he was already in college and was trying to make a better life. So how did that change his trajectory? You know, he actually gets out of the life by moving and he starts getting out of the life when it starts becoming riskier to get the pills, you know, the pseudoephedrine pills that he needed. And he talks about, you know, pre getting crackdowns, you know, on the pills and the purchase, he could go somewhere to a small convenience store and they would basically give him a couple of receipts showing he bought a couple of boxes, but then they would sell him all of it, you know, and again, nobody's buying that much pseudoephedrine or some of these other chemicals for any legitimate reason that in those quantities. And so he he's because he's younger and maybe because he's doing it on this isolated farm. And the one time he almost gets caught, you know, stealing in hydras, the guy runs off when he threatens to throw the jug at him. The second time he almost gets caught cooking meth in his truck, he literally lights his truck on fire and burns everything. So there's no evidence. Hence, he escapes the life without detection no arrests, no convictions. In that time, he actually, you know, blows the truck up. The cops even talk to him and they warn him and they're like, look, we know you're doing something, you know, kind of consider this your kind of get out of jail free card. This is your one time. And so eventually he leaves and he talks about, he himself talks about it being more of a mental dependency, which, you know, there's debate about. Some people talk about meth is very physically um, addictive, but once he kind of escaped the situation and the environment and left, it was easier for him to get out. And unlike his friends, who some of them were even just coming out of prison, you know, after 10 year sentences at the time that he sat for the interview, you know, he made his way to college and he now talked about being able to pursue his dreams and goals that he originally had, you know, in a pro-social way because he didn't have that felony label, that felony conviction, that, that heavy felony conviction label that sticks to you and limits your opportunities moving forward. Yeah, and many of those who do have that label, quote unquote label, do find themselves having a difficult time getting back into society, finding work. We've had one of the 33 who said, actually the laws don't help you to get back into society. After he lost his license, he had a difficult time even coming up to money Mm -hmm. to get his license back, but he needed his license to find work. So he can get back and pay for the, so just one after one thing after another, just cycling through, just made it more difficult for that particular person out of the 33 to enter back in society. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things Nicholas said that was also intriguing is, you know, he, the most he ever cooked was like an ounce, you know, which is still not chump change at the time, you know, but he says, you know, it wouldn't matter if I was doing a little bit or an ounce. 
he's like, so if I'm going to do it, why don't I just make as much as I can given the supplies that I can get? Because the risks were no higher or lower for him if he made just a little bit or made that much quantity that he would then split with others. So kind of, again, some of the unintended, you know, consequences of what we do when we don't really, you know, have all the information and don't even know. Well, you've listened to episode five of season two of the podcast, The 33, based on the book Methamphetamine, a love story written by my guest, Dr. Rashi Shukla, professor of criminal justice here at the University of Central Oklahoma. I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson. In the next episode, we will have a special guest from California who will share her story after losing a family member to their addiction to meth. Join us then as we look into the darkness of those who battled their addiction to myth. Thank you for joining us. If you or somebody in your family or friend is battling with addiction, call the National Drug Helpline at 1-844-289-0879, or you may be able to text the Crisis Text Line. Text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741, anytime, day or night.